Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast, where you can learn how to improve your diet, lose fat, and get fitter in a sustainable and fun way without spending hours in the gym. Here is your host, Darren Kirby. This is episode 32 of the Fitter, Healthier Dad podcast. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing metabolic health. Joining me on the show today is Metabolic Mike, aka Mike Muzel from High Intensity Health. Mike has been interested in health and nutrition since he was seven years old. As a child growing up in the 1980s, Mike and his brother spent a lot of time watching Jean-Claude Van Damme karate kick bad guys to save beautiful women and that made him want to be a bodybuilder. Mike has gone on to get a BS in biology, an MS in clinical nutrition and is a graduate of the Institute for Functional Medicines. Hi Mike, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. How are you? Hey, I'm doing lovely. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem at all. I'm super excited to to have you on. I'm, a, like I said, a big fan of your work and um, all of the, the various different topics that you cover um, around just health in general and functional medicine. And uh, it's, a, it's an area which I'm uh, not qualified in, but super passionate and interested in. So um, it'd be good to share some of this with uh, the listeners today. So before we get into to all of that good stuff, Mike, can, can you just get a bit of background on, on Mike and how you come to start High Intensity Health? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. So to make a long story short, you know, even going back to, to when I was a young kid, I was, uh, the f- I've had an interest in health. I mean, ever since I was like five years old, I just love the aesthetic look of, uh, you know, bodybuilders, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Frank Zane, Jean-Claude Van Damme, things like that. And, uh, you know, played sports as an adolescent, did, uh, you know, American football in high school, and then uh, <clears throat> did a pre-med undergrad and started working with a medical doctor here in the United States and had aspirations to go to med school, but kind of realized that, you know, a- as amazing as the practice of medicine can be from helping people, there's a lot of paperwork and, and dealing with insurance, and it wasn't what I had thought it might be. So decided to kind of pivot my career a little bit and got a master's degree in nutrition, and started working with uh, a few different dietary supplement companies as a, as a sales rep, essentially a consultant. And uh, I figured out that, gosh, these doctors are, are, they know so much about medicine, but they don't know much about nutrition. And I, I you know, got my master's degree in nutrition. So then started educating people uh, and people, I mean, healthcare practitioners, MDs, DOs, doctors here in the US and also Canada in, in a webinar type format. And this is going back to, you know, 2011. And uh, in 2014, started this video-based podcast because I realized, well, gosh, if, if we can interview these doctors and you know, in a webinar format and educate all these people, why not just educate everyone, the world? I mean, um, so yeah, that's the long and short of it. Yeah, awesome. I think, um, you know, I've only really recently come into this space um, around uh, nutrition in, the, in what well, I say recently in, in the last seven years. And I completely agree with what you're saying. You know, doctors are fantastic at what they do, but there's a, there feels to me, particularly in the UK, there's a huge, huge disconnect between nutrition um, and medicine. And um, it's only now and, and guys like yourself that have really shared this stuff on how profound it is is it now starting to kind of, I feel, gain a lot more momentum and that connection is now starting, obviously, um, 
to, to be talked about in a lot more detail. So you, you, you talk about metabolic science, which is, is just a massive kind of area, really. Um, but when we, when you talk about metabolic science, what exactly do you mean by metabolic science? Oh, that's beautiful, Darren. You know, if we think about what our metabolism does is, I mean, obviously there's kind of the, the, the hormones that control our, our sexual function and reproduction is kind of one side of our metabolism. And then the other side of metabolism that I, I try to focus a lot on is how our body deals with the energy that we consume in the form of food or that we store on our body in the form of body fat or even store glucose as glycogen. So I like to help people better understand, you know, how to make lifestyle changes that can favorably affect these, whether it's the, the utilization of the food energy that they ingest or the utilization of the stored energy that's on their body in the form of body fat. So yeah, if we want to just characterize what metabolism is in the context of this conversation today, Darren, it's really how our body deals with energy. And whether we're talking about nematodes and roundworms or fruit flies or pigs or chickens or humans, uh, we, we all have to, uh, all of these, you know, pathways that involve, that involve the, the distribution of energy to help the organism. And in this case, the, the human, you know, the animal that is a human, uh, there's different hormones and, and different cellular mediators that are involved in that. And we see these shared all throughout different uh, even as small as fruit flies and roundworms that we talked about, uh, up to whales, uh, to, to us as humans. So these pathways are what we call evolutionarily conserved. And so we can, we can see this all throughout the animal kingdom. And so what's unique is we now know different ways to manipulate these metabolic pathways that are more favorable. And we also know how our environment can make these metabolic pathways kind of sticky or dirty, if you will, and not function optimally. And that's the state that I think a lot of people are in right now. And they're, they're confused because they're hearing messages that have been propagated since the 1940s about calories and energy balance. And, and while energy balance is, is important, we know that our hormones, our epigenetics, our microbiome, uh, inflammatory insults, circadian rhythms, all things we'll probably unpack today in this conversation impact these hormonal and metabolic pathways that ultimately, you know, are the contingent factor governing whether or not we're going to carry excess energy in the form of body fat or whether we'll be lean and healthy. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's very interesting, isn't it? And there's a couple of things there, really. And one is what you mentioned there about the, the stuff that we've kind of, it's been passed down through generations since the 1940s. Um, and, and now we're, we're only now starting to question whether that information is right. And in, in many cases, it's being challenged and proven to be different to how we understand it. And I think that just in itself is, is a big challenge because, you know, people are very skeptical about change, aren't they? And, you know, when, when you are challenging something for which has been brought up through generations, um, People are very skeptical to take that on. You know, the case in point is around ketogenic and being fat adapted. And, and I speak to a lot of people now around about, um, you know, using fats as fuel. And they're, the reaction of people is just unbelievable because they think you, you know, you, you, you're trying to dupe them into doing something that they shouldn't be doing because we've been told fats are bad, right? You know, all the food industry tells us the fats are bad, but actually, you know, once you start to really understand it, 
um, fats are a, a really um, great way of, of getting you know unlimited sources of energy. But you know, that, and that's just one part about about what you you were talking around the, the metabolic side of things. And the other thing, Mike, as well, I, I want to pick up on is is that you know there's there's a lot of complicated terminology and there's a lot of complicated um, you know explanations about what's going on. But actually, I find that the solutions are very simple and basic when you under when you understand it. Would you say that's the case? Because a lot of it is just manipulating your diet. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. You know, I think you can make this very complicated with jargonistic terms and, and medical nomenclature. But ultimately, like you said, Darren, I mean, you know, for example, let's just give a real world, real world example here. Instead of counting how many calories you're eating and, and trying to match that with your energy expenditure and various, you know, Fitbits and, and order rings and all that, a very simple thing that, that generally majority of the people, and I'm saying 80 to 90% can get benefit from is just compressing the window, the period of time during the day in which they eat. And this is called intermittent fasting and a specific subset of intermittent fasting called time-restricted feeding. And so, yeah, it sounds like all these multi-syllabic words, but basically what we're doing is we're just saying, okay, instead of grazing all day and worrying about how many calories you're getting versus how many you're burning, you can eat pretty much anything you want outside of refined sugar and processed you know, bread and things like that. Basically real food, even if it's higher in carbohydrates, just eat that during, say, from you know 10 a.m. to maybe 6 p.m. Or if you want to be even more aggressive, between noon and 6 p.m. And most people, even if they're having a higher carbohydrate diet when they're eating those foods during that period of time, because they're fasting for 18, 20 hours after that, it's causing their body to pivot their metabolism into a state that's characterized by more fat oxidation and ketone utilization. So very simple thing to do. You just tell people, hey, forget counting all this stuff. Just eat during this window. And that's doable for most people. There's been a few randomized placebo-controlled studies with a control group that have looked at this in type 2 diabetics that have looked at this in healthy people. They, they didn't instruct these individuals about what to eat. They just said only eat during these hours. Again, the phenomenon that we're talking about here is called time-restricted feeding. And, you know, looking at various complex biomarkers and metabolites, they showed that these people, even though they're not changing their diet, they're just changing when they eat and compressing that feeding window. It has a lot of favorable metabolic and health benefits. So that's just one example of something that, you know, like you said, it doesn't require a calculator or a spreadsheet. It just requires being a little bit more vigilant and a little bit having a little bit more willpower about avoiding the snacks and just calling it quits and you know saying okay after 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. I'm done eating that's it doors are shut you can use an app called Zero it's a free fasting app you can start your time restricted feeding protocol so that's just one of many examples that are so simple but yeah we can dive into the nuances of all the metabolic pathways that are upregulated but the take home message is very easy to implement yeah I, I agree. And I think that there's another side to this, and that is the way that the, um, I guess I want to say food industry, but it's also retail, isn't it? We, we in the modern world, in the in the first world, we have so much access, twenty four hours a day to food. Now, it's all almost become the norm that you just eat whenever, right? There's no kind of how it used to be. Perhaps I don't know what it was like when you was a child, but. And certainly when I was a child, you'd have the three meals a day and that was it. Now, 
food is accessible 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, and it's, I think that's another area that we've unconsciously just kind of, you know, walked into. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big point. And I, you know, you, it makes us wonder where this advice is coming from and how these uh, habits got kind of ingrained into our head. And I, I, I can't help but wonder that it was industry influenced. I mean, if we look at the, the, where did snacking come from? Because like you said, I mean, I'm a, a little bit younger than you, but I, I was born in the early eighties. Um, yeah. it, it was, yeah, it was three squares a day. But then I remember in the, in the late nineties, there was this whole phenomenon of, of snacking being emerged and you have to have a protein bar or a protein shake in between major meals. And kind of the premise of that was that you can, um, you know, ha- fuel your metabolic flame. And, and there was these, these, these notions going around that by snacking all the time, you actually increase your metabolic rate. And admittedly, I bought into this too. I didn't know any better. You know, I was reading some very serious yeah. books and uh, things, Atkins books and things like that during this time. But, but I fell into this and it, I, I kept finding, I like to look into the scientific medical literature to see kind of where things happen and the origin of, of, you know, um, medical suggestions and things like that. And Here's what's interesting, Darren, about that is the whole snacking phenomenon was was based upon clinical studies in type 2 diabetics. And what they were looking at is if they gave these individuals, individuals the same amount of calories but spread it out into six or seven evenly proportioned meals, that their blood sugar variability and fluctuations weren't as high. And so, again, th- these are in insulin dependent type two diabetics. So they're taking hormones or not, they don't need as much hormone. So what we're doing is we're applying a paradigm that is helpful in people that have a disease that's managed by medications in applying that same dietary, you know, guidelines to people that are relatively healthy that aren't on medicine. So from, from the get go, it's set up to fail in the sense, because most people don't have diabetes. Most people are not taking insulin. So um, yeah, it's, it's super interesting if you look at kind of where this came from and somehow this got adopted into the mainstream, probably as an offshoot of products being sold to diabetics, uh, and saying, Hey, here's this energy bar. Here's this shake. Here's this. And then that trickled into relatively healthy people. And then look at where we are now. I mean, I see so many people that are over exercise, under eating, snacking all the time, and it, they are exercising like crazy. But if you look at them, it's like they don't even look like they exercise and they don't even look fit because they're sending so many mixed messages to their bodies. So it's really a shame that, that this advice is still being propagated to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And again, for me, you know, it, it, it's, it's, I think as humans, we tend to overcomplicate things as well. And, um, you know, if, if we can just dial it back to just like you say, you know, eat within a certain window, eat the three meals um, and just keep it simple, then, you know, we, we would be in a much better state. But I think with the fitness and nutrition industry, it's like, well, okay, so I'm going to get fit. So I need to take all these different proteins. I need to have all these different snacks and I need to have a really complicated diet. Actually, no, you don't. You just need to keep to basic nutrition principles um, and you will achieve the goals that you, you've set out to achieve. And actually, your performance when you are when you are exercising will be that much better. So um, yeah, I, I just feel that we we just overcomplicate it. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, nutrition is one of these weird fields that 
unlike other domains in life, if we talk about uh, investing, if we talk about retirement, if we talk about real estate, you know, other domains where we, we really consider the context. And so, you know, here in the U.S., uh, people are always thinking about retirement, their 401k, their different retirement portfolios, investment portfolios, you know, which pieces of real estate are a good long-term investment investment versus aren't. But in nutrition, what we do is we we kind of apply this blanket cure-all thing to every individual. And we like to just kind of copy what other people are doing. Uh, and, and that's what we need to kind of consider is the context, right? So look, like you talked about all the snacks and the meals and everything like that. Uh, if you're a 260 pound bodybuilder that has, uh, you know, 200 pounds of lean muscle mass, yeah, you might need to have more protein and more snacks because you're trying to, you know, have as much lean mass as you can. But if you're a 200 pound woman who who doesn't even lift weights and is trying to lose body fat, you know that that could translate into excess energy and will never really help you lose the body fat that you're trying to lose. So um, the, the big thing that I love to reinforce over and over again is, is context. We really need to look at our body and our nutrition program from an individualized standpoint and consider things like our health history. You know, have we been physically active our entire life or maybe we haven't touched a gym since high school or college, right? Uh, what sort of diseases run in our family? Did, did dad or mom, did they have dementia or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or heart disease or diabetes? All these things, you know, genes don't determine everything, but there is some familial risk that we need to be aware of. And that can determine whether or not we should eat a certain way or how much we should exercise and what types of exercise we do. So yeah, context is very important. And I just want people to, to always be personalizing and customizing things to their unique goals. And I encourage people, Darren, I'm sure you talk about this too. You know, when something isn't working, have the freedom to change it. I think a lot of people think, well, fasting is good or Calorie counting is good, but it, but if it stops working for you, then you need to customize and tinker with that so it starts working. And that's the other kind of interesting thing about nutrition is, unlike investing or unlike real estate, you know, uh, sometimes things work and then they stop working, and people continue to do what used to work even though it's not working now. And that sounds kind of confusing. Uh, like, how could something used to work but it's not working now? Is because as we age, our bodies change, our hormones change, our insulin sensitivity, our glucose levels change, you know, men's testosterone drops, estrogen increases throughout lifespan, right? So we need to make some adjustments as we age. And just because something worked for you in college doesn't mean it's going to work now. And I think this can be kind of frustrating because we like to lean on what has historically worked for us in the past, but our bodies are not the same right now as they were five years ago. So we need to always be thinking about, you know, how we can tinker and test things and always refine. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, that's becoming more and more apparent as, you know, the, the topic of gut health is now obviously quite um, popular. And, you know, the, the, the research that's now gone into that with our microbiome and the fact that, you know, everybody's microbiome is different. And, you know, the, the quote, I think it was from Socrates, one man's food is one man's uh was it one man's food is another man's poison or something like that and you know the, the diversity that we have in our guts and so you know we all too easily adopt a an eating habit or a diet which everybody else is doing which might be right for them but absolutely toxic for for the next person so um yeah i mean the the, the gut health um topic as well is 
for me, it's it's so you know, and not being a medical practitioner, it, for me, the way that it's explained is so um, logical in the sense that you know we've got our gut and what goes into our gut affects you know our mental health, our brain health, and everything else that goes in our body. It seems so logical to me. And it's amazing how now really it's only starting to come out. But I'm, I'm guessing that's because of, of the development of science and technology and stuff like that. But, you know, I know, I know you've, you've done quite a lot of interviews with various different doctors around gut health and microbiome. Um, so what's your kind of take on that? And why do you think it's now that this is all coming out? Yeah, this is a great question. Well, it, it's all kind of coming to head now because back in 2012, there was the release of the first data of the human microbiome project. And, and so we didn't really know about it. I mean, obviously we knew that we had these microbes living and teeming on and around our body, but we didn't know what real influence they were having on our body's immune system, on our body's inflammatory burden, on our body's metabolism. And so, uh, you know, a group of researchers, uh, many different teams throughout the world started this initiative called the Human Microbiome Project. And, you know, the, and part of this initiative was, was really kind of, uh, the failure of the Human Genome Project. As you may remember, Darren, kind of the end of the, the 20th century, uh, start of the 21st century, we, we were told that, hey, once we figure out and, and decipher and characterize our human genome, we're going to solve every disease known to man, everything from cancer to AIDS to diabetes. And, of course, we know now that that all these diseases have increased in their prevalence, and we're now, you know, there's children that are getting uh, previously what was considered an adult disease like diabetes. So, just identifying the genes wasn't enough, and so researchers have then realized that wow, well, well, these these bacteria that are living uh, uh, within us and among us they're controlling the way that our genes are being expressed. And so that um, I think is a big reason why the microbiome kind of became so popular. Uh, and it's, it's an area that I've been very interested in. I mean, just to give people a little primer, a little example, uh, I was working with this medical doctor that I was, you know, when you asked me about my introduction, Gerard Guillory, there was a medical assistant here in the U.S. Doctors have assistants that help with things, blood pressure, you know, new patients uh, come in, they, they, they prep them for the office visit. And to make a long story short, this woman, bless her heart, was uh, morbidly obese, had tried different diets over the years, and, and nothing worked. And so she underwent a now very popular procedure called gastric bypass surgery here in the U.S., also known as bariatric surgery. And how this surgery is, you know, there's d different ways in which the stomach is is uh, surgically uh, altered in in a sense to basically shorten how much food people can eat and how much they can consume and so forth. And so you're kind of bypassing uh, the upper part of the small intestine and, and, and shortening the digestive tract. And lo and behold, she lost a, a ton of fat, a ton of weight in a very short period of time. And th this was, you know, I was observing this in 2007. I was blown away and I thought, gosh, how is this procedure working? You know, because she, this, this woman didn't change her diet, but every time I saw her, we'd have these staff meetings every week. She was leaner and leaner and leaner and she was still eating the same food. I mean, you know, and I was like, but this is crazy to me. So I went, uh, and again, uh, this is circling back to the microbiome. I'm just telling the full story here. So I, I went into the University of Colorado Medical School Library where I would do research at that time and came across a whole litany of papers uh, suggesting that that bariatric surgery, one of the main mechanisms of action behind how it's working is by changing 
the colony the, in the, the proportions of different bacteria in the intestine. And therefore, that's affecting people's ability to burn body fat. And that blew my mind because I, you know, w- common wisdom would suggest that if someone gets structural, you know, surgical resectioning of their intestine, they just can't eat as much. So it's really an energy balance kind of surgical procedure, but that's, that's only a small function in terms of how this procedure works long term. And then, so I started to dive into this. Well, what are, what are the, are there natural things that we can do to kind of mimic the hormonal and the, gastrointestinal microbiome changes associated with this procedure. And lo and behold, there's a lot of research, there's a lot of pharmacology, there's a lot of drugs, natural compounds that kind of mirror the same physiologic effects that are observed from this very invasive and very medically expensive procedure called gastric bypass or bariatric surgery. So yeah, I wrote a book on this back in 2014. It's called Belly Fat Effect, and and it dives into the details of, of all the different natural things. And if we look at something very basic, like exercise. When you exercise, yeah, you're burning fat, you're causing your muscles to move, but there's also a microbiome shift and it actually improves the diversity and therefore the integrity of your microbiome. So just by exercising, not only are you changing your metabolic health in your muscle tissue and in your liver favorably, but you're also favorably improving the health of your gastrointestinal system and your microbiome various hormones that are released from our intestine. Uh, let me just pause here. A lot of people think that, well, when you eat sugar, you, know, you eat pro- you, you have a, a Coke or you have a Pepsi, you have a soda, b- bread, your blood sugar rises and therefore your insulin rises. But that, while that is true, what's even more upstream of that is you have a litany, 26 different so-called gut hormones. Medically, we call these incretin hormones. And incretin is derived from the Greek word uh, to happen before. So basically what, what happens is when we're eating food, these gut hormones are the first hormones to increase and they affect insulin release. They affect blood sugar levels in the post-meal window. So these incretins play a key role in how our body regulates the post-meal processing of all the energy that we eat. And that's why the whole, there's a whole push for type two diabetic drugs and metabolic drugs and obesity drugs, looking at these gut hormones and how to manipulate them. Because what we're seeing is the alteration in these gut hormones happens before insulin resistance kicks in. And so, you know, a lot of people wait till they get full type two diabetes and then they start taking insulin. But long before that process becomes so deranged, there's uh, a reduction in these gut hormones. And so that's, uh, and to make a long, you know, to circle back to exercise, when you exercise, you increase these gut hormones. When you eat food in a predictable circadian rhythm fashion, like we introduced this conversation around time-restricted feeding, you too increase the healthy levels and secretion of these gut hormones. And so you know, uh, these people are eating 24 hours a day, snacking at midnight, going out to the pub at two, three in the morning, having, you know, pizza, you know, basically your gut is not primed to process food during that circadian, during that time of the day. Your, your, your gut has a clock, you know, just like, uh, just, you know, just like it, your gut is aligned with the rise and fall of the sun. And so when it's dark out outside of nocturnal animals, you know, uh, Darren, as, as we look here, I have, I have backyard chickens and I have pigs and we have turkeys, you know, they yeah. stop eating at 6 PM. Like when the sun goes down, they're done. They're not getting a midnight snack. They're not getting ice cream or pizza or this, uh, they're, they're asleep. And 
as humans, we're sometimes too smart for our own good. We, we think that we can, because we are able to eat whenever we want, that that's acceptable. And that's the problem with modern society is the conveniences of having access 24 seven to all this energy. Uh, it, it, it's incongruent with our body's physiology. And, uh, and part of that, part of the mechanisms here is the microbiome, is the gut hormones. Uh, and all that. So, so that's kind of, you know, a very long back way of, of talking about, you know, the gut. I, I think, no, but I think it's very important, Mike, because what it kind of comes back to what I was saying earlier, and it's about education, because a lot of people will have, like you say, they'll have access to these snacks, so they'll have the midnight snacks, and they question, well, why shouldn't I eat? What, what's the reason, you know, what's it going to do to me? I'm going to be fine. But actually, once you start to understand the science and and I don't mean that people need to really start reading scientific books and all the rest of it. There's plenty of information, obviously, like this podcast, which will explain the reasons why and distill it down into really simply simple uh, information that you can understand. And, And I find that particularly with men and with dads, once they understand the reasons behind it and the reasons why, they, they join the dots and they're like, oh, okay, right, so, so that's why I shouldn't be doing that. Okay, so that's, what I'll, that's why I'll stop doing it. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that, you know, we have that explanation and the reasons why behind it, not just because you shouldn't. You know, that's not really a, a justification, is it, really? Um, and, and often, that you know, it, 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 it's not until it's too late do people then make that change? It's not until people then have to start taking medication for type 2 diabetes do they then make the change. And, and I think what, you know, particularly what you're doing and particularly what I'm trying to do is is make people aware that make the changes before the problem occurs. Um, and, you know, I, I think that kind of brings me on to the, the function, functional medicine piece because that's a, a, an area which I just find it's hugely fascinating um, and perhaps you can kind of give the listeners a, a, a breakdown on what functional medicine is and, and why it's important. Yeah, I mean, I would love to. I mean, this is a beautiful transition or segue into, you know, being more proactive and being a participant in, in your health. And so if we kind of look at medicine and the, the, the creation of medicine as we know it today, uh, medicine was really kind of created and formed around fighting infectious acute diseases, cholera, diphtheria, bubonic plague, uh, poisoning. You know, uh, lifespan was shorter uh, prior to the onset of, of traditional medicine and modern medicine as we know it because, you know, lifespan uh, historically amongst humans and also other animals is contingent upon, uh, you know, not getting sick from these acute diseases. And so basically that was the paradigm from which modern medicine stems from. And so what what makes functional medicine different compared to conventional medicine at present is that same paradigm of treating acute disorders like like say a chronic um you, you know pathogenic uh, say bubonic plague or cholera or diphtheria or tuberculosis whatever whatever pathogen you want to think about that really uh, negated lifespan in humanity we're applying that same paradigm to chronic diseases that are that are different in their etiology or the formation of which. So, for example, um, you know, you get cholera or tuberculosis. It's very sudden onset. It's very acute. You need medicines right away. But for type two diabetes, what basically it's a lifestyle induced, dietary induced diseases. So, if you don't exercise, if you eat like crap, if you don't manage your stress, if your sleep is all over the place, you're overworking, you're drinking too much alcohol, you're doing all the wrong stuff. 
you're not going to get that disease right away. You're, it's going to take decades, maybe even two to three decades before you have so much chronic buildup and your, your metabolic pathways are so imbalanced that your blood pressure is elevated, that you then have low testosterone, low hormones, you have no energy, you have brain fog and you need medicines. And so this is the, the difference with, you know, you can't, cure that or, or help that person long-term by just giving them a pill if they're still making the poor lifestyle choices. And that's the challenge. Again, just to compare paradigms, we're applying an acute care model to a chronic disease system. And that's what makes functional medicine difference is we're saying, okay, well, in, in the practice of functional medicine, we know that people that are getting these lifestyle-induced diseases uh, autoimmunity, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, all these things, dementia, are, are not really arising from acute insults. They're from chronic latent uh, diseases. And so what we, the, the solution, the paradigm under which we're going to ameliorate those diseases and help improve the health of that person is not just by taking a pill. It's, it's by doing the exercise and all the lifestyle stuff that we've been talking about, compressing the feeding window, eating a low carb ketogenic diet, imparting some intermittent fasting protocol, uh, managing stress and all that. So it's all these different things. Now, the challenge there is doctors, you know, as many people know, they don't have a lot of time because of how they're being reimbursed through, whether it's NHS or, or, or whether it's you know, uh, the National Institutes of Health and, and uh, you know, here in the U.S. And, and, and Medicare systems, they don't have enough time. They're not paid to sit with people for an hour and talk to them about th their real poor relationships or their stress or their, how much lack of sleep they're getting, right? So they're given a drug and then they're sent on their way. And then they, you know, wonder why, you know, they, they are given another drug to, to mitigate the side effects from drug number one and, 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 and around it goes. And so more, thankfully though, uh, the reinsurers, so the companies that are insuring the major insurance companies are waking up because pretty soon here, this is, this is already unaffordable and it's getting even more unaffordable. And so the companies that are financially, you know, backing the major insurance companies are like, whoa, we're going to, Everyone's going to, you know, t take a hit here. And so they are implementing and, and trying to steer the practice of medicine to properly address through lifestyle modifications, these, you know, lifestyle induced diseases. And so that this is the exciting thing. And I, I really like it because oftentimes we go to the doctor and we think the doctor knows everything. I'm just going to show up. I'm going to take the pill. I'm going to go home. But for all the chronic diseases that we're trying to prevent and what is affecting the health of people, they need to be a participant. They need to be active. They can't just take the pill and go home and not change anything. They need to be involved. And that's what's exciting about functional medicine is it's causing people to wake up and realize that, yeah, the doctor's there for you, but they, they don't live with you. And your day-to-day -day lifestyle decisions are going to determine your long-term health outcome. So if you don't want to lose your marbles and, and, and lose all cognitive function, if you don't want to have a sudden cardiac death at the age of 50, then you need to pull up your bootstraps and, and take charge of your life. And so this is what's really exciting is, you know, we're kind of transitioning away from the doctor knows everything. He gave me these medicines. I'm okay. I can eat whatever I want to. Hey, look, you know, the doctor said, I don't need to take these medicines if I do all these things in my life. And therefore I'm not going to experience a litany of side effects and the costs associated with that. So it's a pretty exciting time. 
Yeah, I agree. It, it is a very exciting time. And I think here in the UK, one of our biggest challenges is the fact that the NHS is such an amazing organisation, but it cannot continue in the way that it's going at the moment, which is constantly putting money into the system um, because it's just under so much strain. And if it continues in that way, it will just get to the point where, you know, we won't be able to put enough money in to keep it going. And therefore, people waking up and and taking responsibility for their health and actually, you know, you know, being more proactive, I think is is the better way to do it. And I think we're, I, I also believe that we're in in a very unique time from a technology standpoint as well, where there is so much now out on the market that just for a little bit of education, you could there's lots of tools that you can use to really monitor yourself so that you can understand what your body's doing on a daily basis when you know and it and things like heart rate variability and things like that, which will give you an indication as to when your body's under stress and when you're, when you start to get a little bit sick and things like that. So I think it's, you know, it comes back to, to education, awareness and consciousness again. So I agree. I think it is a very, very uh, exciting time. Um, but, but if we, if we take it back to the, the, the simplicity side of it, Mike, and, and think and look at basic dietary principles, um, you know, there again, they, we, we've talked about time restricted eating. We haven't talked about keto and diets like that. And I, to be honest, I don't necessarily like talking in that context of diets and keto and things like that. I, you know, for me, keto is more about fat adaptation uh, and metabolic flexibility. So I don't like to use the terminology keto, but obviously it has its place in in our in our diet. So. What do you think that the, the kind of obviously out the Western modern diet has evolved over time to where it is today? And there's a, there's only a small subset of people which are, you know, following a, a fat adapted diet and fasting and the rest of it. So what would you say are basic dietary principles that based on the knowledge that you have that you think that, that people should follow? Mm, that's a great question. Yeah, I think looking at prioritizing protein so really, when you look at your plate, you know, a lot of people are focusing on vegetables and, and carbohydrates and stuff like that. But but unless you're doing a lot of physical activity and you're very physically active, you don't need actually the body doesn't the body can make carbohydrates. It's called gluconeogenesis. The body has a million and one mechanisms and hormones to raise glucose. Um, it only has one hormone to lower it, and that's insulin. So uh, I, I like to have people prioritize protein, um, eat fat because fat is good for satiety. Uh, fat is good, especially as we, as, as men age, you know, what happens is, uh, we, if, if we become insulin resistant, it really wrecks our hormones and it causes us to have, uh, increased uh, aromatization of our major male hormone called testosterone into estrogen. So uh, I think it's very important for men to eat a lower carb, higher fat diet and use carbohydrates sparingly when and if needed, you know, and when I say that, so look, if you're going to go, um, you know, go vacation in uh, Europe and, and go, you know, ride the tour, tour de France this summer, you know, before the tour starts or, or do a lot of rowing, 
then yeah, you can have some carbs on that day. But if you're just sitting around uh, hanging out with your spouse or your family or you're at work, you don't need a lot of carbohydrates. And so getting away from this idea that carbs are always bad to, hey, carbs are a fuel source. I eat them when I when I need them based upon my activity. So I think that's key. And protein is very essential for maintaining uh, lean muscle mass as we age for, uh, you know, uh, affecting uh, satiety and appetite. Um, you know, so if you if you have eggs and avocado, maybe a little bacon or something like that, you're not going to want to crave and, and have the donuts and the croissants and the, and the baguettes. You're going to be full. You're going to be satiated. So, you know, what we find is when people transition to a low-carb diet, independent of all the beneficial effects of ketones and fat oxidation and, and cleaner fuel burning and all that good stuff, uh, it's just the satiety. And so, that, that really, I think, is more favorable uh, from a long-term health standpoint. So that's kind of where I stand uh, on that, and, and I'm not an anti-carb guy. Um, you know, if, as we get into summer, it makes more sense. You know, the, we're more active. The days are longer. These things are seasonally available, so we can have more more carbs then. But as we record this, Darren, you know, in the winter, dead of winter, I mean, it's there's not a lot of fruit, not a lot of berries. There's certainly no mangoes growing, uh, you know, where you're from and definitely not where I'm from here in, in, you know, Seattle, Washington. So I'm not having those foods and I don't recommend having those foods. So I think, um, you know, when in doubt, consider the season and consider what would be growing around you because your microbiome is, and your metabolic pathways are adapting to your environment. Uh, the body's always adapting to enhance survival. And so this is the challenging thing is we, we, with this calorie model, we just think, oh, well, you, you know, 2000 calories a day, eat whatever you want, as long as you're under that calorie mark. But what we don't realize is, you know, our body is constantly adapting to our environment. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think one of the areas which I've not delved into too much, and that is the seasonality of foods. Um, and, you know, again, with modern, um, the modern food industry, we, we can basically have any foods at any time of the year now. That doesn't mean to say that we should have it. And I think it's really key what you said there is, is understanding the seasons and what food is available at that season and eat that food. And and again, it's just it's just simple. It's almost like we've come full circle, isn't it? And we, we're going back to our ancestral roots um, and, and, you know, and just living and eating simply like they used to. So I think that's 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 really um, key. So. We, we talked a, a lot about uh, insulin sensitivity um, and blood sugar and things like that. And, and one of the things that I'm very aware of is how bad it is for your blood sugar to continually um, spike and, and then crash. And, and my understanding, Mike, and the reason it is bad is because of, of, of the inflammation that it can create in your body um, and the insulin and the insulin resistance and uh, um, things like that. So can can you delve a little bit deeper into that? Because I think this is an area which is is not widely talked about enough at the moment, but it's very key to our long term health. Yeah, this is a beautiful you know point. I'm glad you bring this up. Well. I mean, there's many different ways, but but to make a long story short is for men listening, fathers listening, if you want to be around for your children and your grandchildren, uh, you want to be more insulin sensitive uh, because basically what happens is as we become more insulin and resistant and we have higher levels of insulin that just accelerates the aging phenomenon. And so now we can look at our epigenetic age. We can look at there's different blood markers that we can look at to see if we're aging faster. And so 
if we keep these glucose levels and particularly the glucose fluctuations, those up and down peak and valleys, if we keep those more compressed through eating a higher protein, higher fat and exercising, uh, basically we age biologically slower and um, we can preserve our mental capacities, our mental function. We can reduce inflammation, reduce our risk of cancer and things like that. So I think that's kind of the big thing. Um, and as we, as we kind of get away from over consuming carbohydrates and having all this carbohydrate volatility, uh, it also causes our mitochondria, which are these little powerhouses within our, our cells that power our brain, you know, the ability to think and, and read and recall and speak, you know, all these things are, are very important and, and driven by mitochondrial function, which mitochondrial function naturally declines with age anyway. So if we can, you know, rely more upon fatty acid oxidation and, and have more blood sugar sensitivity, uh, we can kind of supercharge our mitochondria. And so I think that's kind of the big thing is from an aging standpoint, from a longevity standpoint, from a quality of life standpoint, it just makes a lot more sense to, uh, to kind of favor, favor fat oxidation. And, and what I mean by that is, is eating a, a more, you know, protein dominant, fat dominant diet as opposed to the bread and pasta and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. But again, you know, it, it, it's this, this um, understanding that fat that fats are good for you, but there's a caveat with that as well, and that's not just any fats. Um, and obviously, everything is is in moderation. But I think, yeah, just spe- maybe spending. Uh, and, and the guys that I work with, I always get them as a, as a first instance to kind of just do a food diary, so that I can instantly see about you know the types of foods in terms of macronutrient content that they're eating. And pretty much 99% of the time, it's always heavily weighted towards carbohydrates. There's some fats in there, but a minimal amount of, of proteins. And, and just by switching those ratios around, you can get some, some quite um, impactful results in a, in a very short space of time. So in terms of we've talked a lot about diet um, and the various different elements of diet. So, so physically, obviously, physical fitness and exercise is 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 key in all of this as well to to help with with blood sugar stabilization to help with um you know burning food and just being active and it helps with our mitochondria so what would you say uh, is a good fitness regime i mean there's lots of different areas now with with hit workouts with crossfit and everything else but again, I would imagine, Mike, your approach is probably very, you know, simple. Yeah, I, I try to be as simple as possible, um, especially for men. I encourage good old fashioned weight training and, uh, you know, the hit workouts and all that, that that can be good if you're one of the types of people that really need uh, a lot of social support when it comes to exercise, because most of the HIIT workouts, you know, you're doing it with a group in a CrossFit style setting or a group style setting, which is amazing. But I like to, uh, to do powerlifting, do, do hit a- every major muscle group one day per week. And that's going to help preserve lean muscle mass. That's going to help slow down, uh, the loss of muscle that naturally happens with men. And the, the big thing that we need to understand about muscle is muscle really helps us with our blood sugar stability as we age. So um, very important. Uh, and then also incorporating just movement into our day. So, you know, before prior to to uh, earlier this morning, I, I ride, rode my bike to the gym, rode home. There's a, a really steep hill that I sprint up. 
uh, you know, just moving around uh, in that regard. Uh, parts of the UK are very bike friendly. Uh, parts of Europe are very bike friendly. So, um, you know, walking, moving uh, is very important uh, because what you're, you're telling your body to, to oxidize fat and, you, and you're, you're by stimulating your muscle. So very important. Yeah, so I think that's a key point as well, actually, um, because a lot of people I don't think necessarily understand why walking is good because it, it, it's accessing a different fuel source, isn't it? When we're walking, we're doing that lower level um, intensity of actually just moving. You're actually using your fats as opposed to your glycogen stores, which is where obviously carbohydrates come in. And obviously, you know, when you're doing your sprints up a hill, that's when your body's going to kick into to, to burning glycogen and it, um, you know, from, from carbohydrates. Right. So um, to sum up then, Mike, what would you say would be the, the five key actions that the listeners could take away uh, to improve their health and well-being? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on, Darren. You know, I think, um, you know, as we talked about just compressing that feeding window and trying to eat, you know, during daylight hours of uh, doing your best to be real consistent with your sleep, you know, as parents and especially father figures, you know, we're, we're oftentimes uh, running businesses and, and working uh, and parenting. So we, we got to be mindful of our work-life balance and, um, you know, putting boundaries on when we're on the phone, when we're on the computer and just really prioritizing that sleep uh, is super important. Just, you know, taking the, taking the stairs, walking, um, trying to incorporate movement into everyday life, especially with the kids, just go out, Hey, let's go take a walk. Let's go do this. Instead of driving, let's ride our bikes uh, to wherever we're going to go to the park or scooter, um, move that way and prioritize, uh, you know, make sure that you're, you're hitting the, your weight yeah, resistance training and hitting the weights. Uh, this can be body weights. It's going to be air squats. This can be pushups. Uh, lean muscle mass is really protective as we age. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say. And, and pay attention to signs. You know, if your libido's down, if you're not getting morning erections, if your sex drive is down, um, yeah, obviously change your diet and, and so forth, but don't be shy to go into a doctor and check your hormones, see what's going on there, because, uh, that's a sign that something's not right. Um, and, you gotta, you gotta tweak some things. And so now all the different things that we talked about with regards to supporting metabolic flexibility and metabolic health also affect hormones too. And, and that's, that's great. So, uh, everything comes full circle and this is all iterative, you know, it's, it's a big flywheel moving and you want to just keep the momentum of the flywheel and, you know, hit it from different angles all the time so that, uh, you have some inertia built up when it comes to your health. Yeah, I definitely think tuning into yourself and not just accepting, you know, things that are not right as being the norm is, is really key. I think a lot of the times men and I was, uh, I've got a guy that I'm working with at the moment, you know, we just accept and we and we think it's okay and we think we've just got to push through it. Actually, no, you know, if, if you're off, if you've got this cloud over you, if you, you're feeling a bit under the weather, just stop and just kind of, introspect in, in, into yourself and just think well what it what I, I don't normally feel like this what's going on why what have I changed what am I doing and just have that that more awareness and like you say you know don't be afraid to go to the doctor and, and get yourself checked out right. so before we wrap up Mike um it's been really great to have you on the podcast I really appreciate your time but um what did you what didn't I ask you that you feel that I should have asked you which would benefit the listeners Ooh, yeah. Great question. Um, gosh, I'm not sure we covered a lot. I mean, mindset is so important. Uh, the belief, 
that you can do this so you can change is, is really important. Um, I think a lot of people, a lot of clients that I've worked with, they've had body composition issues, body weight issues, health issues their whole life. So they kind of feel like, well, this is just how I'm going to be. This is just how I am. But uh, the body is really adaptable. Uh, our, our bodies adapt to our environment in real time all the time. So it's very important to have the belief that that you can and you will change and you will change your body over time. So I think that's a that's an important point, just having the mindset and belief and um, what you think is is what you become. So a lot of people have these ruminating, repetitive, negative thoughts and negative self-talk and and uh, that that can manifest you know, into, into those thoughts. And so we want to always, you know, even if, even if you have a little bit of, of, of doubt, just believe, you know, um, the placebo effect is so strong. So, uh, visualize your, your belly fat shrinking, visualize, uh, your ability to have more confidence, visualize your muscles getting bigger. Uh, a lot of bodybuilders, a lot of athletes use, uh, and, and leverage visualization techniques to, to make it to the professional level. And a lot of a lot of people think, ah, that's hogwash. That doesn't work. That's uh, woo-woo spiritual stuff. But it's it's very effective, and this is why, you know, some of the top performers in the world, before they take the stage, before they hit the field, uh, they're visualizing success and they believe in themselves. and And I think a lot of people, um, you know, we 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 eat the best foods and we we exercise, but we have these destructive thoughts, and uh, and and that holds us back. So I think that's something that we definitely can't. Uh, disregard. And as men, it sounds weird to talk about, oh, positive self-talk and affirmations. It's kind of a girly thing. But look, some of the most masculine men, uh, the, the wealthy men, actors, performers, executives, th- th- they they believe in themselves and they they have sticky notes and post-its and and stuff on their on uh, in their car, in their wallet, you know, to to constantly reinforce their goals and who they're trying to be as people. So I think that's something that we really should also focus on in addition to everything we talked about. Yeah, definitely. I definitely agree with that. And there's also science to back that up now as well uh, in terms of visualization and the impacts and effects that it has. So yeah, I think that's a great point to to end on, Mike. So in terms of uh, how the listeners can uh, find out more about you, I know you've got a fantastic youtube channel uh you've got a great website so how can people connect with you mike yeah that'd be amazing so uh if anyone enjoyed this podcast i'm over on highintensityhealth.com that's my website i'm pretty active on youtube uh also do a lot uh my own podcast in itunes and then on instagram as well so uh happy to connect with anyone that thought this was of benefit yeah that'd be great and uh, yeah i highly recommend guys to to check out particularly your YouTube channel and your podcast. Um, is, there's so much great information. You have some great guests on there. And, um, yeah, you get uh, really deep and, and down into, into uh, specific topics. So, Mike, thank you very much again for coming on. Um, I really appreciate your time, and uh, I look forward to hopefully speaking to you again soon. Sounds amazing. Thanks so much for having me on, Darren. Thanks for listening to the Fitter Healthier Dad podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please hit subscribe and I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on iTunes. All the links mentioned in the episode will be in the show notes and a full transcription is over at fitterhealthierdad.com.